The sermon text then for today is Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 15. Verse 15. I'm not sure why I'm turning there because I think I have this one memorized. But Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the eighth commandment. And it says, You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, instructing us and training us uh, in accordance with what is good and right and your own good and holy character. We pray that you would teach us at this time to make your word profitable to us, that it might not be blown away, that it might not be choked out, uh, but rather that it would take deep root in us so that it might bear good fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I preached on the seventh commandment, uh, which was, uh, still is, you shall not commit adultery. I mentioned that this command pointed us to God's good ordinance of marriage. Uh, God ordains marriage for several ends. Uh, As our confession of faith puts it, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. I would want to add, thinking of last week, uh, that these ends are also good reasons to get married. Uh, The last one, the prevention of sexual immorality, uh, can bring about even an obligation uh, on those who burn, like we mentioned. But the other ends are legitimate reasons for a person to get married. It's generally not good that a man be alone. Uh, The creation mandate puts a general obligation on all mankind, though maybe not every individual, but on mankind to be fruitful and multiply, and marriage is the means to reach that end. Uh, While individuals who are gifted for singleness can remain single with a good conscience, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, that is more the exception than the rule. As Benedict says in Much Ado About Nothing, Shakespeare's work, the world must be peopled. Today, we move, though, from the subject of marriage uh, to the subject of work and property. Now, these subjects go well with each other. Uh, The desire for marriage, you know, for all of these ends, often precedes the age at which a person is ready to get married. Um, Usually, you have that desire to get married before you are ready to get married. And that can help motivate a young person to work, to get married himself or herself, ready for marriage. Likewise, diligence in the work of your calling can help keep you from temptation. Uh, When King David did not go out, as was the custom to do, uh, uh, with his troops to war is when he fell into temptation. Marriage is a help not only in procreation, but also for the work of dominion. And the topic of work and dominion is also found in the creation mandate and in the account of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam is formed from the dirt to work the dirt, being named after the dirt, uh, to work and to keep the garden. And Eve was formed for him and helper fit for him. And both were blessed with this mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, uh, bearing dominion over the earth, uh, caring for it, 
and developing it. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden and given possession of all the earth, and indeed that they could eat all the, uh, of all the trees and the plants except for one tree, and they were not to eat of it. Nevertheless, they took fruit from that forbidden tree and ate it, and mankind has been stealing from one another ever since. But they began with that trespass, that prohibition. Man so often now tries to avoid work and to take the shortcut to the results of work through theft, through fraud, through robbery. It's a pseudo-dominion, a perversion of God's ordinance. This commandment, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, like all the commandments, uh, should prick your conscience as you examine it and examine yourself, should uncover your sin to yourself. Sometimes you feel, probably, that you'd rather remain ignorant of your sin, right? It's a lot more comfortable to just not realize that you're sinning, but it is good to know your sin, that you might confess it to God, that you might turn from it, and that you would do instead what is pleasing in his sight and prize Christ more dearly as the Savior from your sin, the one who is forgiven much and knows that he has been forgiven much will love much. This commandment also shows you the way to serve your Lord and Savior, to show your gratitude and love for salvation. It should prod you in the way of sanctification of the holiness that befits God's redeemed people, the way that you were meant to walk in. Mankind was created after God's image. He is designed to work in imitation of his creator, as a sub-creator on the earth. Work is good. Work accords with your design. Adam and Eve were not created for idleness. After the fall, to be sure, God imposed toil and pain on the work, but he reaffirmed that calling to work the ground, to make it fruitful. Mankind should pursue this work with diligence and excellence, working for the Lord. Now, today, to structure today's sermon, I want to use Ephesians 4.28, one of the verses that you can also find on the sermon insert. There, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So first, you shall not steal. Second, you should work diligently. And third, you should use your possessions properly. First then, you shall not steal. Uh, The the, explicit uh, duty of this commandment that's, that's stated there. As our Shorter Catechism puts it, the Eighth Commandment forbiddeth, whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Now, earlier we read Exodus 21 and 22, parts of it, uh, which described a variety of different cases of potential theft and the proper judgments in those cases. Um, and, and gets down to more detail concerning this commandment. Leviticus 6 contains a similar list. In Exodus 21 through 22, it really gets at the issue from the perspective of the judge, like all those judges that have just been appointed in Israel. What happens if this case is brought to you? How do you decide that case justly? And of course, with much application for everyone. But that's kind of the way it's stated. In Leviticus 6, the perspective 
is that of the guilty person who realizes his guilt before anyone calls him to account for it. What should he do? Um, and so it also describes a variety of situations in which, in which a person might have broken this commandment. Let me read uh, Leviticus 6, 4 through 6. It's also on the sermon insert. It says, If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest, as his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. So, as soon as you realize your guilt, as soon as you're convicted, act to make it good, give the thing back, and add a fifth to it. So, a fifth of its value in addition to giving the original thing back. It assumes, of course, that you still have it and can restore it uh, along at least with a fifth course, you have example of someone like Zacchaeus who goes above and beyond that, restores four, fourfold what he had defrauded others of, um, but at least a fifth. In the case of someone who's being penalized, who's before a judge, sometimes he would have to repay double, sometimes four times as much if he no longer had the item and it was sold or destroyed. There's a variety of cases there, what restitution, what just restitution looks like in a particular case. Um, but one thing I want to call your attention to is just the variety of kinds of theft that are described. Of course, there is robbery, um, breaking in, stealing property. Uh, sometimes uh, robbery especially refers to theft with the use of force, you know, your money or your life. Um, it, also, there's the idea of theft by stealth or deception, or maybe a mix of both. First, the person tries by deception. If that doesn't work, then he uses force. But that's, of course, maybe where our minds first go to when it comes to stealing. Don't do that. That is breaking this commandment. But there's also getting by oppression. What does the Bible mean by getting by oppression? Well, that might be by withholding the payment of wages, uh, something the Old and New Testament describes withholding or even delaying unduly the, the not prompt paying of wages to people who depend upon it, uh, the use of extortion, uh, the using of power to misuse or circumvent the laws to seize property, uh, to take advantage of the poor by usury, and usury probably could be a whole uh, other lesson, uh, does not necessarily refer to all interest on loans, uh, but would include charging excessive interest on loans, as with predatory lending, or charging interest on charitable loans to brothers, uh, to fellow Christians. Uh, but there's certain uh, oppressive uh, uh, ways to take advantage of other people's misfortunes to uh, take their property by oppression. Um, there is that of taking from a deposit committed to you. Someone has given you something in trust to take care of, or perhaps you're borrowing it. Um, a person who steals from those funds or possessions that were lent or entrusted to you, destroying it by negligence, not replacing destroyed property that was borrowed, those would be violations of this commandment. This applies to things entrusted to you privately, as well as the funds of a corporate body or the state, uh, that you should use those funds properly rather than embezzling them. Or there's the case of taking a lost thing without making the effort to return it to its owner. Um, Exodus and Deuteronomy both address that. When you see a neighbor's lost animal, 
Even if you see your enemy's lost animal, you should not ignore it. You should not take it as your own, but you should bring it back to him. Deuteronomy 22 says, if you don't know whose it is and it comes to you, then keep it until he seeks it, and then you shall restore it to him. In other words, make an effort to return it to its owner, and if you fail, uh, keep it in trust, being ready to restore it when its owner comes. Of course, that's the case if it comes to you at home. If you're at a restaurant, you see something lost, you don't want to take that home, the person's never going to find it then, you know, give it to the lost and found at the restaurant you're at. That actually happened to me while I was preparing the sermon. Um, saw something lost and gave it to the person behind the desk. But you want to return the lost thing to its owner. Uh, anything about which he had sworn falsely is another thing, which covers a variety of circumstances. And you go back to the case laws in Exodus where there might be a dispute. Did, he, did this person, where did this property go? Did the person who was borrowing it take it? What happened? They swear oath, I did not touch it. I was not responsible. Well, if he's lying, then he uh, has, has broken this commandment and should restore it. Uh, Another case mentioned in Exodus is that of causing damage to your neighbor's property by negligence, as when your ox kills your neighbor's ox or eats your neighbor's crops, uh, or if you start a fire that destroys your neighbor's crops. You need to take actions uh, not only to preserve life, like we saw in the Sixth Commandment, uh, taking precautions so that you're not negligent, uh, that you take care to preserve life, but you should also take steps to preserve your own and your neighbor's property so that it's not damaged. The Bible also condemns unequal weights. Uh, you know, if you were making a transaction then that day and you might have something that's worth, you know, so many shekels of silver, but then you use unequal weights so that it looks like you're actually using more or less and an idea of counterfeiting or, or defrauding someone in a transaction, that is an abomination to the Lord. Of course, today we have online ways of scamming people or stealing identities, uh, which would be a form of theft. The Bible strictly condemns man-stealing, stealing people, um, kidnapping, human trafficking, we might call it today. Uh, Man-stealing is the only kind of theft that's punished with death in the Bible, since humans are more important than stuff. Um, Normally, the penalty is paying just restitution, uh, but for man-stealing, it was a capital offense. Uh, There is the, the, the fault of borrowing without intending or trying to pay back the debt. Uh, The wicked borrows but does not pay back. The righteous is generous and gives, as we sang in Psalm 37. Generally speaking, this uh, commandment is uh, broken when you do not give to each his due. Uh, Romans 13, uh, 7 covers this in quite broad terms. Pay to each what is due him. Honor to whom honor is due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Uh, Proverbs 3 exhorts you, if you have the thing with you and it's owed to someone else, don't keep it. You know, pay it. Uh, pay what is due them. Uh, do not withhold good from your neighbor. Fulfill your obligations to others. You must not steal from your employer or your client or your contractee by idleness or negligence, not doing the work that they paid you to do. Uh, to do that through idleness is to defraud them of the labor that they paid for. Uh, to do that job that you were paid to do. You must pay 
what you owe. And certainly this passive form of stealing, which consists of not doing something, is a lot easier to fall into than that type of aggressive breaking in and stealing something. It takes a lot more effort, and both of which, though, we should be attentive to. Now, the civil government has a duty to protect private property, to settle property disputes justly, uh, to enforce restitution for property unlawfully taken, withheld, or defrauded, uh, to punish man-stealing. This protection of private property, uh, when the government does its job, it it encourages diligence and enterprise. A government that seeks to abolish private property and establish communism is unjust and unfaithful to its charge. The whole point there was to to establish and to protect those property rights. Uh, The government must not undermine private property by its actions or abuse the people by excessive taxation. Now, taxation itself is not theft. That's a, a phrase that some people use. Taxation is not theft. Not paying your taxes, in fact, could be theft. Uh, but taxation could be theft if it was levied by, uh, without lawful authority. You know, if, if Canada decided to come down and levy a property tax on all of us, that would not be a legitimate authority. That would be theft, um, just to use an obvious example. But taxation also can break the broader principle of this commandment by being excessive and oppressive. Um, The prophet several times condemned civil leaders who devoured the people's wealth like wild beasts. Scripture presents an example of oppressive taxation in the case of Rehoboam, uh, which was very foolish. Proverbs 29.4 says, By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. And I think the ESV footnote here is more accurate. Uh, He who taxes heavily uh, tears it down. I would also note, in our American context, we think about the American War for Independence. That was about taxes, right? Well, it was fought through just interposition uh, to resist the actions of the British Parliament, which had usurped the power to tax them. It wasn't so much about excessive taxation as illegitimate uh, authority, usurpation. Um, They had taken this power from their local assemblies where they had representation, and had therefore undermined their right to private property. It wasn't fought against excessive taxation, but against illegitimate and unconstitutional taxation by a foreign body, or at least a a body that did not have that right. It could have become excessive because it was done without any representation from the communities it taxed. That's why it had belonged to their local assemblies. So the civil government has a role, as with many or all of these commandments, uh, to uh, establish, to restrain wickedness in society, to to promote good order in society, so that we might live godly and dignified and sober and honest lives, uh, and that these things might flourish. So stealing is wrong. Stealing is also foolish, as the way to true prosperity is through diligent and wise work not through violent or deceptive schemes of theft. It is uh, an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Stealing violates the stewardship that God has given to each person over their own property. Rather, you should be honest, fair, 
and faithful to your neighbor, rendering to each his due. That is the idea of do not steal. Do not defraud. Do not um, uh, be unfaithful to this trust. To not unjustly hinder uh, your own or your neighbor's wealth and outward estate. Secondly, though, again, all these commandments have a, a positive element as well. Not only don't steal, but do be diligent. As the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, presupposes marriage, so do not steal presupposes private property and honest labor that is involved in procuring and maintaining it. It implies a positive duty. So our shorter catechism says, the eighth commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. This is your duty. And Paul draws this out as well. We didn't make it up. Ephesians 4 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. As one person said, you can't replace something with nothing. Uh, Replace the stealing with honest labor. Replace the sinful shortcut with the original task, honest work. You should work diligently and honestly to preserve, produce, further your own and your neighbor's wealth and outward estate. Of course, according to your abilities, your situation, the infants don't contribute a lot at first, you know, but according to what powers you have to be, as uh, Thomas the Tank Engine puts it, a useful engine, right? Not causing confusion and delay. Good Protestant work ethic, at least in that children's story. Much better than Curious George. So, a few points here on working diligently then. Look to God's example in creation and providence. You are, especially as the redeemed children of your heavenly Father, and from the beginning you are created in His image. So look to His example. God creates, makes the world. He sustains the world, and He does so with wisdom, that is, with purpose, design. He, he produces things that are both beneficial and beautiful. He adorns the flowers of the field, even though they only last for a day. Uh, he, he also makes food that's good for you, as well as delightful to the taste, right? And he shows mercy and care for his creation. He doesn't just make it and then destroy it. He, he, even though it deserves to be cursed now because of our rebellion, that he still maintains this order and he cares for it. So you should also work with wisdom, produce good beneficial and beautiful things, and also show care and and stewardship for uh, his creation. Look then also not just to his example, but to your mandate, his ordinance of labor, both before and after the fall. You are meant to work, to care for, to develop the earth, its its potential uh, for the development of the earth and for the good of yourself and your neighbor. Uh, To work now involves toil, difficulty, sweat, pain, but at its core, it's a good thing. It might be hard to work, uh, but it's also certainly not satisfying uh, to be idle, uh, that there's a satisfaction in work because it was what you are meant to do, as well as pain and frustration and uh, the toil that now uh, comes with it. Thirdly, not only look to God's example not only work to his ordinance, but also look to the ant. I'm talking about the little insect. 
right? That's what Proverb tells us. Look to the ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Be at least as good as an ant. You know, an ant doesn't wait for you to tell it what to do. It gathers the food ahead of time. It's prudent. It's wise. It's, it takes initiative. The ant, without having any uh, chief, officer, or ruler, is uh, a diligent little insect that cares for its needs and takes forethought and, and does its work diligently. So look to the ant. Look also, as Proverbs would present throughout its book, to the results of diligence and sloth and take the wise and responsible route. Uh, that passage goes on to say, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Uh, that, look out. It might seem like it's just a little bit here and there, but it all adds up. Proverbs 10 verses 4 through 5 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So scripture exhorts you to work with diligence, like it just said there, to work with prudence, working at the proper time with forethought. It also exhorts you to Work with skill. See a man skilled in his labor, he will stand before kings. Uh, Proverbs also, and I'm forgetting which of these passages it is. Let's see if I got the right one. Nope, I wrote, wrote it down wrong. But it also describes how the one who is slack in his labor is a brother to him who destroys. Um, that there is certainly destruction in want and destruction, going out and destroying things, but often slower uh, and surely, though, similar results happen with someone who simply doesn't work, uh, that he is a brother, he is a kin, he's similar to the one who destroys. So look to those results, choose wisely. Also, look to the apostolic charge. Look to what Christ's apostles taught you. We read last week, 1 Thessalonians 4, where in addition to promoting sexual uh, chastity, he also exhorted the people to work diligently and to walk properly before outsiders so that you're not dependent on others, that you carry your burden as much as you can. Well, in 2 Thessalonians, he has to circle back to that point and exhort them not to be dwelling in idleness, but uh, to uh, work uh, diligently and to earn their own living, to eat their own bread, uh, to put their skills to work. He comes to that issue in First Timothy as well, both for men and women, in talking about the support of widows. He talks about a, a worthy widow who, in her younger years, had been diligent in uh, many ways, who had 
a reputation for good works, if she had brought up children, had shown hospitality, had washed the feet of the saints, had cared for the afflicted, had devoted herself to every good work, and then even in her older years that she had set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You know, so the abilities, the opportunities might change from season to season of life, but, uh, but he was looking to, uh, for, for widows who were diligent with the uh, opportunities they had, and then also for, for those who were to support them. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. Uh, and so there is a responsibility, especially here for, for men, to uh, provide for their household, for the people dwelling with them, but even beyond that to their relatives, like, their, uh, like the widows in their uh, extended family. Look also to Christ the Lord, Christ your Lord, and serve him in all you do. In Colossians chapter 3, 22 through 25, the Apostle Paul exhorts uh, servants in the work that they do. They certainly have a master that they're working for, but even that context, they ought to look beyond their master, to look to Christ their master. The word for master and Lord is the same. He's the one that will provide you for an inheritance. You might not get an inheritance from your master, but the Lord is the one whom you are truly serving. Serve then as if he's watching you, because he is, and he is your master, and he will uh, be one, your reward, your inheritance. And so serve the Lord diligently, not as people pleasers. And finally, look to the care of your heavenly Father, working with faith in him for your provision. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, uh, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, do not be anxious about possessions, about food and clothing and shelter. Uh, do not love these things either, uh, but rather work with faith in God, that uh, he is your father and he cares for his children. It's interesting, the third commandment about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain kind of matches the first petition of the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name, that we pray that God's name would be sanctified and hallowed, which is our duty in the third commandment. Likewise, the eighth commandment matches the fourth petition, give us our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we seek to, to work, to not steal for it, to do honest labor. We also look to God to provide for us, uh, to give us a competent portion of the good things of this life. And so not work with anxious toil of those who are without God in the world, but rather to work with those who trust their Father. And so work diligently instead of stealing, instead of theft or fraud. The third point, then, is to use those possessions properly. That's the third part of Ephesians 4.28. Not only let the thief no longer steal, uh, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. But the last part is so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. You know, what's the point of having the stuff that we've worked for? We should put it to good use. And the first use would be of generosity. Use possessions generously. God was generous to you at creation. God is still generous to all mankind, whether good or evil. And he is especially generous in his care for you, his child. So therefore, be generous with your possessions. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul gives instructions for the rich in particular. As for the rich in this, partic- in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's instruction for the rich, but of course this trait of generosity should mark all of God's people. Um, The Psalm 37, uh, we looked at already, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. What's the positive side? The righteous is generous and gives. Later on it says, of the righteous man, he is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Interestingly, looking up all the case laws regarding stealing and property, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 through 25, allowed Israelites to eat grapes or ears of grain from their neighbor's field, but prohibited them from putting any of those grapes in a bag or container and prohibited them from putting a sickle to harvest their neighbor's grain. Now, I'm not saying that you should use this exception on your neighbor's crops, Uh, unless it was guaranteed, you know, unless the law of the land affirmed that right or you had an understanding with your neighbor. But I think we can learn from that law uh, to not be perhaps overly precise about your own property, but to be generous and hospitable with it. It should also teach those who receive hospitality to not abuse it. Uh, Both aspects of that law being important. But in general, use your possessions generously that you might have something to share with those in need. Secondly, use your possessions dutifully. That is, use your possessions to meet your responsibilities. Use them to provide for yourself so that uh, as much as possible you're not dependent on others. Uh, Also, as the case may be, provide for your household, for your relatives, whoever you are responsible for. We already looked at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. Uh, in Second Thessalonians. Uh, use your possessions to fulfill your duties. Uh, think about your own responsibilities. Scripture also commends uh, the practice of providing inheritance for your descendants. That's a legitimate use of wealth as well. A, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Thirdly, use your possessions productively. Use your possessions to produce more good things. Improve it. Make it fruitful. Consider the examples of Joseph and Jacob, whose wise and diligent management was blessed by God so that the estates they managed increased and were productive. They did this for their master, but you should do this even if you're not serving another. Be a good steward of your possessions under God, subduing the earth to make it productive. Make it productive so that you have more than to use on all these other uses. Consider the woman in Proverbs 31. She puts the wealth of that household to good use. She considers a field and buys it. That takes money, right, to buy the field? Well, why does she buy it? With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So she is investing that in a a real estate investment. Uh, Makes that capital productive. Proverbs 27 23 through 27, exhorts you to manage your possessions well and attentively so that they produce for you and are fruitful. 
Know well the condition of your flocks, and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone, and the new growth appears, and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and maintenance for your girls. We find a negative example in Proverbs 24, the example of the sluggard who does not even maintain his possessions, much less make them fruitful. I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, these are mostly agricultural examples, uh, but we can make application to other forms of, of possessions as well. Use them productively. And then lastly, enjoy them with thankfulness, contentment, and propriety. There is a overly ascetic form of, you know, or view of wealth that would uh, almost feel guilty enjoying your possessions. Um, but there is a lawful use of one's own possessions. Indeed, these are given as gifts of God. What do you want someone to do with a gift you give them? Do you want them to give it away right away? At least that's not the intent. You hope that they're happy and, and are, are grateful, right? There is a moderate and good pr- proper use after all, that same instructions to the rich in 1 Timothy 6 describes God as the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Uh, it's from an attitude of thankfulness for all the good things that God gives us to enjoy that we're then more likely to be generous with others, too. This is great stuff. Here, have some. Well, earlier in 1 Timothy 4, he had condemned the, the doctrine of demons that denied the use of good created things like marriage and meat. Uh, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Notice there are qualifications. You should use it with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's through God's word, through Christ, that we can use these things with a good conscience, uh, that uh, we can do so not as outlaws, but as children of the Heavenly Father. But we should not reject His gifts but rather enjoy them with thankfulness. Ecclesiastes 5 talks about how the love of money leads to dissatisfaction. A person who loves money is not going to be satisfied with money. Contentment is important to enjoy things. Enjoyment comes from the person who accepts his lot, who enjoys his toil, who eats and drinks and gives thanks to God for these good gifts. That's also in that chapter in Ecclesiastes. In our series on virtue earlier, I talked about one, cons- one aspect of self-control is having a soundness of mind so that you use things with propriety uh, as things are intended to be used, that you do not abuse things, but rather use them well. God made things useful and for enjoyment or delight. God's made food that's good for us and also tastes good. Clothing is both to be useful, to keep you warm, for example, as well as to lend dignity to you, to keep you from being exposed. And so, 
God's gifts are not to be used to inflate pride or immodesty or greed or drunkenness or stupefaction. Uh, how are you using these things? Are, they use, are you using them with thankfulness, propriety, contentment, or are you abusing them so that you forget God, uh, abusing them so that you lose self-control, abusing them so that your pride is inflated rather than gratitude? So in conclusion, it's through Christ that you and I can work with a good conscience, can use our possessions with a good conscience, and to seek his blessing upon our labors as our Heavenly Father. Apart from Christ, you and I would stand condemned for breaking this commandment and all the commandments, and would therefore use his gifts as outlaws, alienated from our Maker. But God has made a way for outlaws to become his children, so that through faith in Christ you may be forgiven and reconstituted as heirs and lords of this world to serve the Lord in all your work, to enjoy and use the bounty of your Father's world with gratitude and piety. This is the gift of God. Let's take it. Let's come to Christ. Confess your sins to God. Come to the Father through Jesus, His Son. And having done so, set aside fraud and theft and negligent idleness, but rather do honest work with your own hands. And then use your possessions with generosity, dutifulness, Productivity, grateful enjoyment, giving thanks to God. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your kindness and generosity toward us, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and the use of your good gifts. That you would give us each uh, our, our place to serve you, that we might fulfill our various callings and uh, to your glory, that you would help us to use our gifts and talents uh, for the good of others, for our own maintenance, for the development of this good earth that you have made. We pray that you would bless the labor of our hands, that you would also grant us contentment in this life, as well as uh, the hope and joy that comes in your promise of the age to come. We pray that you would give us the things needful for us, that you would keep us from being led astray by abundance, that we might forget you, or being tempted by lack, that we would steal and profane your name, but rather that you would help us to work with honest labor and to use our possessions faithfully and well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.